The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, we've taken a month off, but it's time to go back to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and I'm very excited to do so this morning. So come with me, if you would please, into the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. We're going to chapter 5 this morning. It's on page 555. Chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, page 555 of your Bible in the pew rack. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab that one or whatever Bible you can have. If you brought yours from home, turn with me to Ecclesiastes 5. We have been learning in the book of Ecclesiastes as the preacher speaks about life under the sun and a way to live in a way that truly honors God is to view life as not just under the sun, but under heaven. And so just as Jesus, as we said in the children's catechism, marks out two roads, the book of Ecclesiastes highlights the same two roads. One is the road of life merely under the sun, a secular worldview that doesn't factor in God at all, when in reality we should walk according to life under heaven, keeping God before our very midst and before our eyes as we live. What this morning, we come to chapter 5, uh, and what we leave behind in chapter 4 is a lot of unrighteousness and evil things that exist in the world. Chapter 5 brings us actually to a very unique section that is almost a bracketed off portion that's going to talk to us about worship. Worship, what we're doing right now. Now to prepare you to receive this, let me tell you, in my recent memory, it's been a number of years, but I've only ever walked out of one movie in my whole life. I don't know if you have ever walked out of movies they're far too expensive to go and then just leave, which is why I just choose to not really go at all. Nevertheless, I've only walked out of one movie, and to my knowledge, I've only ever walked out of one church service. But I have walked out of a church service. It was in California. There were beach balls strewn down from the balcony to be batted about by the congregation, not only before, but during the service singing songs, covering ACDC's Highway to Hell, etc., etc., concluding this is not a church service, and walking out. Now, what the Bible is going to speak to us about this morning is not walking out of church, but walking in. In this very practical section of Scripture, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is going to talk to us about how should we approach God's house? Very practical. So if you've got your Bible open, let's pray. Ask God's blessing upon it. And we will hear God speak to us this morning. Oh, Father, we come now. We have heard your word calling us to yourself. We have responded in praise. We've confessed our sins and received the assurance of your grace. We've affirmed what we believe. And now, Lord, we want to hear you speak to us. And so in the power of your Holy Spirit, it so moved the writer of Ecclesiastes to give us your very word. Come now and by that same word, speak your words of life to us that we might so live and please you and honor you and be blessed all the days of our lives. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. And now, hear God's word, Ecclesiastes 5, in the first seven verses. This is the word of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. 
for they do not know what they are doing evil, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Uh, Do keep your Bible open there. Because we are learning this morning about, quite literally, approaching the house of God. The way the term house of God would be used in the Old Testament is of speaking of the temple in Jerusalem. If we're going to bring this into our times, literally, this is a passage of scripture about how to come to church. Very practical this morning. What we find in the text are four commands. Four commands. Now, as I said, this is a unique portion of Ecclesiastes because thus far, the writer of Ecclesiastes is not necessarily commanding many things. He is merely looking at the world and observing particular realities about life in a fallen world. He is now transitioning and saying, in the midst of this fallen world, there is a place where we can go to experience the reality of life in the fullest sense of what God intended for, namely... Life as it happens in the worship of God in the temple. Life as it is experienced in its fullness in God's house. And here the writer of Ecclesiastes says, you should go there. And as you go there, you should keep these things in mind. Four commands. Very practical. Translated immediately into our context. Let's pay attention to what he says. First of all, how to come to church. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1, he says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. As if to say, be careful. Be careful when you go to the temple to worship. Be careful when you approach the house of God. Don't just show up flippantly. Come with some intentionality. Think about what you're coming to do. You're not dropping by your neighbor's house. You're not casually dropping in on someone. You are coming to the house of God, the place where the almighty creator of heaven and earth stoops down to meet you and welcomes you into his presence. You are coming to the house of God. Think of Moses at the burning bush in Exodus, early on in Exodus. God told Moses, Moses, take off your sandals because this is holy ground. As you approach the temple, as you approach the house of God, As you come to church, you are not doing something casual. You're doing something that needs to be done with purpose, so you must guard your steps. Very practically here at the beginning, we should ask the question, uh, do you make some kind of preparations or intentionality about your Sunday morning? Uh, Usually, Sunday morning is filled with chaos and filled with kind of hectic realities 
inherently, but there are some things that we can do to kind of reduce them. There are things that we can certainly do because the Lord's Day morning begins actually on Saturday night when we make preparations so that when we wake up on Sunday morning, it's already decided what we're going to do. It's already planned out about where we're going to go. Dear friends, I say this both to you and to folks who are online. If you wake up on Sunday morning and it is still yet a decision for you to make about whether or not you're going to go to church, you are not guarding your steps. The reason why we must guard our steps, the reason why we must not just stroll in but come with purpose is because Ecclesiastes says, to draw near to listen is better than the sacrifice offered by fools. Still in verse 1. To draw near to listen is better than the sacrifice offered by fools. This is referencing worship in the temple whereby people would come, they would bring their animal sacrifices and there observe the priest making the sacrifice. They would listen and watch, observe this with silence and then listen to the reading and teaching of the law and then respond with praise. But Ecclesiastes is here drawing out you don't come here to this house. You don't come here to this temple. You don't come here to church primarily to do all the talking. You come here to listen. And Ecclesiastes says, that's the way it's supposed to be. Temple worship operated this way. The New Testament church worships this way as well. The writer of Ecclesiastes is contrasting a foolish worshiper with a wise worshiper. A foolish worshiper goes through all the motions of worship without paying attention. Or they come to be a chatterbox amongst themselves. The wise worshiper observes. The wise worshiper listens. The wise worshiper knows why he is there or she is there because she has come with intended and guarded steps. The foolish worshiper does evil in the house of God with their arrogance because they come, again, foolishly. Guard your steps is the first word. Secondly, coming out in verse 2, the second reason why uh, we must be wise is, verse 2, be not rash with your mouth. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. This is here specifically referencing prayer, but I think it also applies in generalities to all of what we do in worship. We should, again in verse 2, not be rash with our mouth. The first point was about coming with intentionality. The second point is about as we have come with intentionality, coming with the intended purpose to not be rash, to do more listening than speaking. Why? Because the writer of Ecclesiastes says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. This sounds like the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. God is greater than we are. The way one early church father said it is this, Knowing how widely the divine nature differs from our own, let us quietly remain within our proper limits. Meaning, 
when you approach the house of God, when you come to the temple to worship, when you come to church, is it very clear in your mind who the object of your worship is? Namely, God and not you. Do you have what we should call an, an understanding of transcendence? This is the word that Ecclesiastes is moving towards, an explanation of transcendence, remembering who God is, remembering that he is in heaven and we are on earth. If we understand that, we will come with reverence. We will come with humility. We will come, as we do at the beginning of our service, quieting our hearts, acknowledging that we are not here to trifle. We are here to worship the almighty God and creator of heaven and earth. And being not rash with our mouth means, Ecclesiastes says, our words should be few. A key aspect of listening is letting your words be few. How many times have your parents or your grandparents told you you have two ears and one mouth for a reason? Right? To do more listening than speaking. This is true also in the house of God. It's illustrated here in verse 3. Jesus also illustrates this point by saying in our prayers we should not heap up empty words as if by thinking the more words we use the more impressive we will be to God. No, he says the Gentiles do that. You should not do that. I hope you're catching here through these first two points that the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying when you come to the temple it's just not one another thing that you do throughout your week. It's the pinnacle of your week. It's the point of your week. It is the purpose of your week. And so, come guarding your steps. Come without being rash with your mouth, but coming to listen. You know, it would be a foolish thing, wouldn't it be, to come to church and then stand up and say, you know what? We're not going to have any Bible this morning. Instead, I've gathered you all to just give you my own personal wisdom and tell you how I think you should live. Uh, what should you do if I do that? Well, first of all, I hope you can trust that Monday morning my office would be packed up by our elders and I'd be sent down the road. Uh, and you should also insist that you come to worship not to hear my opinion, but to hear what? The voice of the living God. And when God speaks, Ecclesiastes is saying we should listen. So come guarding your steps. Secondly, come being not rash with your mouth. Thirdly, coming out in verse 4. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. This is another reference to the idea of wise and foolish worship or another reference to the fool and how the foolish person comes to the temple in contrast to the wise worshiper, the faithful worshiper. This is making reference to vows. Vows are conditional promises that we make to God and in the context of Old Testament worship would have been a regular part of our worship and actually they're still a part of our worship. The reason why we should not delay fulfilling a vow as you make it is because God has no pleasure in fools and their foolish vows. What does that look like? What is this talking about? It's talking about empty promises to God, isn't it? It's talking about rashly made assertions and vows. It looks like, have you ever done this? 
bargaining with God during the time of silent confession and repentance. It looks like bargaining, right? Where you say, Lord, if you give me this, I'll never do that again. Or if you forgive me for this, I promise to always do that. The book of Ecclesiastes says the person who has a bargaining chip mentality with God is a foolish worshiper. It doesn't just look like bargaining during confession. It might also look like, Lord, once you give me more money, then I'll start to be generous. It's conditioning behavior based upon, Lord, if you do this, then I'll do that. In such a way as putting God into our debt, obligating him to do something for us so we would do it. Now, what happens when you do this? What happens when you make conditional vows with God in rash and foolish ways? What happens? One of two things will happen. First of all, if you fail to fulfill the vow, Ecclesiastes says you're a fool and you're sinning because you're not doing what you said you would do. Lord, if you do this, I'll do that, or I promise I'll do this, and then you must do this. But if you don't do it, Right? You set out yourself to make a conditional vow to God and not fulfilled it, and thereby foolishly sinned. But what happens if you make a vow and fulfill it? Well, you might say, well, that's the, what's the way it's supposed to go, right? I make the promise and I do it. Well, if you're the person who has a contractual relationship with God, and you think that's what the gospel is, Lord, I promise to do this, and then I'll do it, and you bless me, right? If you think that your relationship with God rests on you fulfilling your vows, then your confidence rests in yourself and not a savior. The book of Ecclesiastes is telling us here that foolish worshipers are those who are constantly making rash vows. It is a spiritually unhealthy behavior. Now, are there good vows to make in the house of God? Yes, absolutely. But this is contrasting a foolish vow. What are good vows to make in the house of God? Marriage vows, right? whereby we both promise both to God and to our partner faithfulness. Membership vows, whereby we stand before the membership and proclaim, I believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners and pledge myself to walk with Him, not in perfection, but with sincerity. Membership vows. What about baptismal vows? As parents come before the congregation to say, we pledge before God that we will nurture Christian faithfulness in the life of this young heart. Or perhaps ordination vows, elders, deacons, teaching elders, whereby we stand up to say, I give myself to God in faithful service to Him. There are good and right vows, but Ecclesiastes is saying, if you make a vow, you better keep it, because a foolishly made rash vow is not the mark of spiritually healthy behavior. Fulfill what you vow. Ecclesiastes says, it's better to not do it than to make it and not keep it. Do what you say. Do not delay fulfilling a vow that you make as you come to the household of God. And the fourth principle comes out in verse 6. In verse 6, let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For where dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is emphasizing further what's already been said, but saying, you don't come here to make it about you. You don't come here to make it about your word and your promises and your speech and your dreams. You come here because God has so commanded it. At the very end of verse 7 is the emphasis not only of this particular passage, 
but the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Actually, you and I will have to wait till the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes where the preacher will come and say, look, after all of this, after everything I've seen in the world, I have but one thing to say to you. And he previews it here in verse 7. God is the one you must fear. And actually, he said this in highlight, summary fashion before, if you look back to chapter 3 and verse 14, at the end of that beautiful section, a time for everything that people love to remember, but in Ecclesiastes 3.14, at the very end of Ecclesiastes 3.14, God has done it, meaning God has established our times and seasons so that people fear before Him. Dear friends, the Bible instructs us as the people of God and reverent worshipers that if we would be faithful, if we would be sincere, if we would be true worshipers, we must fear God. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember growing up, hearing that and being totally confused by it. Absolutely confused at this notion of fearing God, thinking, wait, I thought, I thought God loved me. And I thought God delights to, for me to come into His presence. But that's true, yes, of course. But fearing God is an essential component of what it means to be a true Christian believer and faithful worshiper. The Bible has more to say about this. In the book of Proverbs, we're told that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And here in Ecclesiastes, we're told that the fear of God is the beginning of reverent worship. One of the hallmark realities of the unbeliever is that there is no fear of God in their life. They do not care about Him. They live their life under the sun and thereby in a secular worldview have ejected God out of all concern or care from their life. But to the Christian believer, to fear God doesn't mean that we are afraid of Him. It means that we honor Him. It means that we respect and revere. In a healthy way, perhaps, you might have had a healthy fear or respect, perhaps, of a father or grandfather or parent or teacher or somebody in your life that you look to with such honor and such respect that you did not want to offend them. You weren't terrified to come into their presence. In fact, it was a delight because by being in their presence, it strengthened you. It made you a better and more faithful person. But if we must do this at all, the Christian believer must learn to fear God, to revere God, as earlier in Ecclesiastes we read, because He is in heaven and we are on earth, because He is transcendent, because He is different from us, because He is not like us, and thereby we honor and worship Him with reverence and awe and humility and all the rest. Faithful Christian worship means that we must fear God. Now step back from this for a moment, and as you hear these instructions about how to come to church, how to approach God, remember what the gospel tells you about these things. Remember, the gospel is not, God will accept me so long as I worship the right way. Meaning, I'm going to do these things, thereby God must love me because I do these things. No, no, no. The gospel is that you are accepted in Jesus Christ. You are forgiven and welcome. And because you are, you come with reverence. And because he loves you, you come with fear. And because he has forgiven you, you come with humility. That's how the gospel informs our worship. Now, the Christian church, 
specifically in America, has seen quite a few trends, especially in the last 20 years or so. But I remember one from about 20 years ago in the early 2000s was this trend in American Christianity called the emergent church. I don't know if that rings any bells for you. This church through its 180 some odd years has never been considered an emergent church. But the emergent church movement was famous for uh, meeting in random buildings, warehouses, whatever the case might be. And they would set up couches and chairs and everything would be in a circle and everything would be faced inward because there would be no formal service or formal liturgy. There would be no sermon. People would just kind of sit around on couches and talk about well, this is what the Bible means to me, and this is what the Bible means to me, and your truth is valid, and your truth is valid, and it's all the same. No pulpits, just sharing of thoughts. Everything is casual. Nothing is formal. And what the emergent church movement had at its root was a suggestion, hey, God is casual, and he's just like us, so it doesn't matter what we say and what we do. Just kind of come and hang out. There were elements about that that may have attracted some people. But can I just speak very uh, openly to you? My conviction is that what was true 20 years ago and has been true so long as people have been worshiping God is I don't think people who truly want to worship God want to come casually. They don't want to come irreverently. A true worship of God looks like a reverent Approach because the true believer acknowledges, no, God is not like me. He's different. When I come to worship Him, something different is happening than when I go to my moose club meeting on Tuesday or wherever the case might be, right? Something is different in the covenantal assembly of the people of God. If you want to watch a TED Talk, go to YouTube. But if you want to hear the voice of God in the Scriptures, you come and listen. And friends, this is a countercultural principle still today, isn't it? When everybody thinks that everybody else has the right to make whatever truth claim they want, rather than hearing the Bible speak and Christian believers say, so says the Lord, and I believe it. Dear friend, if that's the conviction of your heart, you are strange in the eyes of the culture. But you are faithful in the sight of God, so you've got to determine who you most dearly fear. A God who is just like us is a God who can be approached casually and foolishly, a God made in our image, and ultimately a God who cannot help us, redeem us, or do anything for us. Dear friends, we want a God who is not like us, a God who is worthy of transcendent worship, a God who is worthy of us guarding our steps, watching our speech, only giving honorable vows, coming with sincerity. And so, sincere worship looks like the lifting up of our hearts, speaking with prayer and praise at the appropriate time, but also knowing when it is time to not speak. And so listen. As Ecclesiastes 3.7 says, there is a time to be silent. Not a social meeting, but a covenantal assembly where we both speak and are spoken to. I've told you this before. One of my friends uh, likes to say to people who say to him on the way out of church, they come to him and say, you know, Pastor, I didn't get anything out of church today. To which he will respond, well, that's because we weren't here for you. 
We were here for the Lord. And getting something out of church, dear friends, is a reality when we come for the right reason, with reverence, with fear, and with awe. And I believe people are looking for that. People are looking for transcendence. People are looking for an experience in life that transcends the ordinary. And they're looking for it all over the place. Sports stadiums and in other places where good things happen, but it is in the house of God where the ultimate thing happens. And we experience transcendence and the church understands that. And the church that does understands that and applies it is compellingly beautiful. And that's the kind of church that I believe God is pleased with. And that's the kind of church, loved ones, by grace, we seek to be. Where God's holiness is revered, His honor is feared, His word is upheld, and He is trusted. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we see what Your word teaches, and so we pray, give us faith to believe it. And as we seek to believe it, Father, keep us also from some kind of arrogance to suggest that our particular tradition or denomination is the only one to understand this. Lord, where your name is honored, where your word is believed, and where you are trusted all over the world, where Jesus Christ is received with obedience and love, that is where your true church is. And we pray, Father, that by your spirit, we might be a part of that true church where your name is exalted. And so it is in that name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.